You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 13th, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump back into our journey through these first three chapters of Genesis. Remember, we're, we're taking a big picture look at the first three chapters so that we can then circle back around to the various realities that we learned of in the first three chapters and see how we experience them on this side, not only of the garden, but of the cross and look at them a little more in depth. But first, we're going to go through the big picture. So let me pray and then we'll we'll jump back in. Father, we thank you this morning that we can ask not only for wisdom, not, not only for a healthy indifference to outcomes that comes from you, but we can ask and know that you listen and know that these are the prayers that you delight to answer. And so even beyond the the issues of locations and and buildings, we're asking right now uh, that you would do what only you can do, that you would open up our ears to hear the good news that you have given us in and through your Son. As we come to your word this morning, that your word together with your spirit just do a work in our hearts to help us to see your glory in him more clearly. We ask that you would do this in his good name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 3, if you were with us last week and half of you were on spring break or somewhere else, so you probably weren't, but Genesis chapter 3 is where in the first three chapters we come to learn why things have gone so horribly wrong. To catch you up to speed, what we've seen so far is that God in his infinite love and majesty created all things that exist, including man and woman. And in particular, he, he put man and woman in the midst of the most lavish garden imaginable. And he gave them the calling and the commission to steward that garden to the fullest of its potential. And while they steward that garden to the fullest of the potential, they lived in the joy and the presence of God himself in tremendous freedom and privilege. God said, be fruitful and multiply, eat of any tree in this garden except one. Tremendous freedom, tremendous privilege to be there in his image and likeness and with him. And it's important to remember as we come to the story that even for Moses' original readers on the edge of the promised land and going into the promised land would have known particularly that It wasn't common at all for kings or pharaohs to put people in the midst of their gardens to live and eat freely. If you were put in the midst of the king's garden or pharaoh's garden, you were there to work and you were there to do a job and heaven forbid you ate of that garden. That wasn't for you. That was for the king. That was for pharaoh. That was for his family, not for you. But here they are, created in the image and likeness of God, the ground beneath their feet and all that's around them, the fullness of his lavish goodness and garden is literally theirs, theirs to enjoy as they enjoy him and all of his goodness. But something happens. And as we learned last week, it would take a serpent to understand what actually happens. And as Genesis chapter 3 began, that's exactly who we met As we walk through the beginning of the chapter, we saw a conversation between the woman and this serpent where he began to sow seeds of dissatisfaction in the hearts and the minds of the man and the woman. 
He didn't outright deny God's existence. He didn't outright originally deny God's word. He just planted the air of dissatisfaction. He created an atmosphere where the goodness of God and the goodness of his word could be questioned. We spent time with this last week. I won't spend too much time on it this week, but behind the questions was the insinuation that somehow God was holding out on them. That he was trying to keep them in their place. He didn't want them to be like him. He, he knew that if they ate of that fruit they weren't supposed to eat from, they would be like him. And God didn't want that. He was holding back on them. And the irony of it all we saw last week is that they were already created in the image and likeness of God. But this insinuation, this question that was far from innocent, began to lead them to lose sight of what was true and who they were. The goodness of God that was on display in 10,000 ways, quite literally all around them, all that they had known. We spent some time considering how that's no different than it is now for you and I. Even on this side of God's grace and the cross, the insinuation of doubt of God's goodness and character and the goodness of his word leaves us with 10,000 evidences of his grace all around us and his forgiveness towards us in his son, his adoption of us in his family, his promise of resurrection and eternity with him. It leaves us robbed of our assurance of who we are because of who he is. It's, it's where it all started. And the serpent led them in that moment to believe that somehow distrusting and disobeying God would actually be good for them. It would actually be freeing for them. It was the best good for them. Cornelius Plantinga is a, a philosopher, and he's written probably what I think is the most accessible and best book on, on sin. It's called Not the Way It Was Supposed to Be. And in that book, he, he likens sin, as we see it throughout the entirety of Scripture, to a series of metaphors that the Bible uses or pictures that we understand to understand just how heinous sin is. And one of the metaphors he uses in the book is that sin is much like an addiction that you and I see take over people's lives today. Plantinga said the real human predicament, as Scripture reveals, is that inexplicably, irrationally, we all keep living our lives against what's good for us. We live even against ourselves. This is what's happening here in the garden. Distrusting God, disobeying his word, doubting his goodness and responding accordingly, that's what's actually best for you. Plantinga says, an addict, for example, partakes of a substance or a practice that he knows might kill him, and for a time he does it freely. He has a choice. He freely starts a, a conversion unto death and for reasons he can't fully explain, he doesn't stop until he crashes. He starts with a choice and he ends up with a habit. And the habit slowly converts to a kind of slavery that can only be broken by God. Or as they would say in a 12-step literature, a higher power. This is actually what's best for you. And so we saw last week that verse 6 and 7, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that was... To be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It looked good. It seemed fruitful. And in a moment, the sweetness that had filled their mouth with that first bite quickly gave way to a bitterness that would shatter everything they knew. 
And while their bodies didn't drop dead immediately as they swallowed that fruit, we'll understand death will come in time. A, A very real death did occur. It was a spiritual death. It was a death to all that was. Where there had been innocence, there was now guilt. In a moment, they knew the sting of the conscience, knowing what was right and wrong. And they knew that what they had done was wrong. And so instinctively, they then began to try to hide what they had done and do something about it, right? Where there had been vulnerability, where there had been security, there was now shame. Naked and unashamed, as they were in the garden, in the goodness of all that God had made, had now become a desperate attempt to hide their shame from one another and to try to hide it from God. Where there had been peace, there was now fear. As they became aware of God's presence with them in the garden, what a sweet thing that had been to know the presence of God with them in a way that you and I taste a portion of now, but will one day have in eternity. They had in the garden. And the sweetness of that presence gave way to fear as they became aware of God's presence with them and immediately they didn't want to be near him. They tried to hide from him. And so what we found was they knew that they had done something wrong. They were aware of their guilt and they were ashamed. And so they tried to cover it to the point of hiding from God himself because they were afraid. Hannah Anderson wrote a great book about what it is to be created in the image and likeness of God. And she said, we were created, Adam and Eve were created to be a reflection a mirror that perfectly reflected the light of God, but now that mirror is shattered into pieces. The pieces are still reflective, but they can't give a full or accurate reflection. This shattered state is the state that every single human is born into from this point forward. We inherit both the Imago Dei, being created in the image and likeness of God, but also the will to live apart from him. We are born into this shattered reality. And each of us instinctively wants to twist and distort God's word. Our hearts love the deceitful pleasures of sin. And the reality of it is, in our most honest moments, we all know we can't fix ourselves. We can't put that shattered reflection back together. And this is true of all of us. Sin is the great equalizer. doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, a male or a female, white, black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, from the Western world, the Eastern world. It doesn't matter. Every single one of us is born this way. We're all born brothers and sisters in sin. Shattered reflections. I mean, just a short consideration of this, if we would give it any consideration at all when you leave here this morning, it it should produce in us at least a level of humble solidarity with the people around us. The smugness and indifference that we so often feel towards other people, it's broken in light of the solidarity that we share from Genesis chapter 3. But this is where we left off. This is where the story stopped for us last week. But the story keeps going. 
We left off on the other side of this decision from Adam and Eve and God in his kindness seeking them out, even though they tried to hide from him, somehow presuming they could hide from God, God seeking them out and finding them. And so what's going to happen as God finds them? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's where the story picks up in verse 11. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Right? So he, so he confesses. Right? I ate. But it's not my fault. I ate, but it's not my fault. And I want you to read it slowly. Because I don't think we read it slow enough and deep enough to really understand exactly what Adam is doing. When we retell this story, when we we reference or paraphrase this moment in the Bible, whenever we're in conversation, we always talk about Adam blaming his wife for giving him the fruit for him to eat, but you know, it's not what he does. Read it slowly. It was the woman you gave me. Let that sink in for a second. It was the woman you gave me. It's not my fault. It's actually your fault. You're the one who formed her. You're the one who evidently knew what was good for me. You're the one who gave this woman to me who gave me the fruit. It was the woman you gave me. Now, I want you to see when Adam passes the blame here, I want you to feel and see just how horrendous it is, right? To see it and feel it, you've got to juxtapose it to the moment he first saw her when God formed her and brought her to him. Remember? Busted out in song, you know, that Adamic version of Etta James at last, you know. I know half of you played that at your weddings, you know the song. At last, you know, bone of my, I mean, just a moment that we can't even conceive in our minds, right? That was his response when he saw her. Now, his response is, just take her. What did God say clearly to Adam was the consequence for eating the fruit of that tree? Satan lied about it. Remember, that was the whole point of the deception last week. Satan lied. God said, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. When Adam says, it wasn't my fault, it's your fault for giving me her, she gave it to me, what's he saying to God? Just go ahead and kill her. That's what he's saying. As easily as we often pass the blame onto other people, try to rationalize it and joke about it, there's no joke here. He knew the consequence for it was death. And he said, it's not my fault. Take her. That's how horrendous and evil this game of trying to shift blame for the responsibility of our sin really is. You want to see how twisting sin is to the soul? There's not an ounce of instinct in him in that moment in any way to say, it's my fault. In any way, shape, form, or fashion, knowing the consequence of this behavior to step in for her, to protect her. Rather, he says, take her life, not mine. That is what our blame shifting and buck passing or whatever language you want to use for it truly is. 
It's saying at whatever cost may come, not my reputation, not my pain, not my life, but your life, right? I'm going to pass this over to you. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your job. It might cost you some kind of pain in your life, but at least I feel better and I'm not experiencing it. That's what this is. That's how evil this blame shifting really is. This is where it actually comes from. The blame game is is evil. But Adam's not the only one who plays it. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she too confesses, I ate. No line about that one. But Adam didn't make me do it. You didn't make me do it. The devil made me do it. You realize that's where this comes from. The the devil made me do it. And in their blame passing, their buck passing, their blame shifting, what are they together declaring? What are they both declaring? It's not my fault. We're victims of someone else's actions, someone else's decision, some circumstance that you put us in. It was the woman you gave me and the circumstance you put me in that brought her here. It was the serpent who came to me. Everyone is always looking for a villain. Kent Hughes said, victimhood has become the fantasy land of refuge for everyone from criminals to presidents to theologians who imagine that the blame for their conduct can be placed on some other person, thing, or group. Blame shifting is the therapeutic trademark of the new millennium. Its roots go right back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Its weeds have been growing ever since. Some of the ancients, including Plato, tried to shift the blame onto the physical world. It's the body's fault for why we do what we do and suffer what we suffer. It's the physical world's fault. The body's bad. The, the soul is, is good, right? So you can, just, you can just discipline yourself out of the problem if you can just control the physical, control the body, right? The romantics came along, philosophers like Rousseau, and they said it wasn't the physical that was the problem. It wasn't the body that was the problem. It, it was society that was the problem, right? The heart is actually good, but society is bad. So we need to forget human evil. That idea is stupid. If we find the right direction to engineer the society for civil engineering, social engineering, we can end up where we need to be and stop doing the things we're doing. That gave way to a group of people most of you commonly know as fascists who said, no, it's not the society that's bad. It's a particular group of people. And this is like a hydra with 10,000 heads now. It's on every side of whatever spectrum you want to talk about. The problem is this person or this group of people. And if we could just get rid of them, then things will stop going the way that they're going. We just have to turn on the news to see what that leads to. Freud came along and some of his ilk came along and said it wasn't necessarily society's problem or the physical body's problem. We don't need to engineer this. The problem was your family. The problem is some kind of psychological social repression. They're holding you back from being able to express who you truly are. Nobody's caught this blame shifting better, I think, than Bill Watterson. You know who Bill Watterson is? He's the man who created Calvin and Hobbes. Right? Look, look, there's this, look at this. Calvin and Hobbes. Walking along under the tree. 
Calvin says, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease of process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I accept any responsibility for my actions. Hobbes says one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. Calvin says, well, I love the culture of victimhood. Ever since the garden, we have been trying to pass the blame somewhere. We all want a villain to point our finger to, but Genesis chapter 3 says the villain is sin. It's why James, the brother of Jesus, would write, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You can't blame God. Can't even blame the devil. Can't blame anyone else. It's not the physical, it's not the body's fault that you can discipline your way out of. It's not society's fault that you can come up with some kind of perfect social engineering project to get rid of it all. It's not those people over there. It's not their fault as if you could somehow get rid of them and everything would be okay. The guilt of your sin is yours and yours alone, which means there's only one possible solution, only one possible savior from its consequences. God in his mercy and grace is even going to give them a glimpse of it in the garden, but we've got to understand something else first. There is very real consequences for their sin. This was one of the lies the devil was trying to pass off to Eve and to Adam. But there really is no consequence for what you're doing, but there really is. Look at what happens. Verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That relationship, those relationships, that marriage, that family, the blessing of children that was meant to be such a source of joy and contentment is now going to be the arena for a lot of conflict and pain. The aspect of the responsibility that God had given them to be fruitful and to multiply together, that was going to be the arena for conflict. It was going to be the arena for pain. We're going to circle back and talk more about that after we get through the first three chapters, then come back and look at these things a little more specifically. But I want you just to to remember, she was formed perfectly for Adam so that together they would reflect the image and likeness of God. Together they would be fruitful and multiply. Together they would steward the garden, God's good creation to its fullest potential. But now, now, those things that were such great blessings are going to be mixed with great pain and great conflict. And don't minimize the pain being talked about here to simply the physical pain, especially in relationship to childbearing. Yes, it's painful physically, but the pain being talked about here is far beyond that. Anyone who has had a child, lost a child, given birth to a child, raised a child, has children in this earth knows that there's an emotional pain that comes with parenting that ultimately over time probably is far greater than any physical pain that comes with bringing them into the earth. In fact, one writer said the history of the world can be written in terms of the tears 
that mothers have shed over their children. That arena that was to be the source of such great blessing and joy is now going to be mixed with hardship. And to Adam, he'll also experience the hardship in those relationships. He'll experience the hardship in the relationship with his wife. He'll experience the same pain and hardship in a way with the relationship with his children. But God goes on. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Remember, you just stood there. Passive self-interest, making sure you were taken care of. You knew exactly what I said. I told you what to do and what not to do. I was very clear with you. You knew it. You weren't deceived. Yet you stood there and made no objections at all. I paraphrased and amplified there for a second. Because of that, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. So that responsibility, that work, that job that God gave them before Genesis chapter 3, it's still there and it's still good, except now what they put their hands to is going to push back. The job is still good. The work is still good. The responsibility is still good. But now there's going to be some resistance. Now there's going to be some pushback and hostility. And that ground, which had been the source of such abundance and, and sustenance and satisfaction and, and joy and, and purpose, is now also going to be the arena, not just for those things, but for conflict, for hardship. Right? As Eve was formed from Adam, and now their relationship is one of pain, Adam was formed from the ground, and now that relationship is one of conflict and pain. And we're beginning to understand a bit of why we experience the world the way we do. That's what Genesis 3 is helping us see. We'll come back more specifically to it in weeks to come. But God goes on in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, that was the lie. God's just threatening judgment. He's just threatening punishment. He's just threatening death. He's trying to keep you in your place. If you eat this, you're not going to die. Lie. You're going to work. You're going to labor. You're going to be together. You're going to have children. But it's all going to push back. In all of it, there's going to be joy. There's going to be conflict. In all of it, there's going to be blessing. There's going to be sorrow. And you're going to do this until you return to the dust from which you came. Death is inevitable. And no matter how hard we try to deny that reality, no matter how hard we try to rename it, give it terms and phrases that make it sound less foreboding, it's true. And we would do well to consider the truth of it. We're going to come back in in time and consider this more directly, but just think about the decisions you would make. Maybe the decisions you have made in your life, but the decisions that stand in front of you. Just think about what those decisions might be if the wisdom of the Scripture was applied to your heart and you ask God to help you to number your days, to be aware of the inevitability of death, the lack of control you have over it, even the lack of awareness you have of God's timetable of it for you. So give me the wisdom to rightly number my days. Just think of the decisions that are ahead of you. How might they be different if you just lived with that filter? 
What a gracious filter it is. But now, as God said, death has become inevitable. Their relationships, broken. Stewardship becomes a toil. Death becomes a reality. And if I was going to lighten the mood, I'd have like a meme of Clipper Lang up there, right? I predict pain. That's what's happening here. But it's not all. Verse 22 brings us to what might be in culmination of it, the, the hardest. Exile is going to come. Paradise is going to be lost to them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All that we had seen in the weeks past, the goodness, the lavishness of this place, the lavishness and the goodness and the majesty of God's created order. This place where he created man and woman and put them intentionally to live with him and to steward. It's, it's now lost to them. They're exiled from it. And you and I who live on the other side of this chapter, it's kind of hard to go back and try to figure out just how devastating that loss really is. We hadn't tasted it. We've only known the other side of their sin. But for them, this was paradise truly lost. And as tragic as it is, it's, it's mingled with tremendous mercy. You see, they are under the judgment of God for their sin. For not simply doubting God's goodness, but for disobeying his word, they are rightly guilty of their sin and under God's just judgment. And if they had grabbed that tree of life and eaten it, they would have lived eternally under God's judgment. So God protects them by sending them out. But you got to see, he doesn't send them out of the garden without hope. He sends them out with hope. Hope in the form of a promise and hope in the form of the picture of how that promise would be fulfilled. Look back at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, you should understand that when he's talking to the serpent here and cursing the serpent here, talking about eating dust is actually like an idiom. It's, a, it's an idiom of the day. You find it throughout the Bible. You find it in the prophets. It, it, it speaks of like deep and utter humiliation, of, of knowing defeat at the hands of an adversary. This is what your days will be. Deep and utter humiliation, knowing the defeat that's to come. And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity. Now, speaking of the evil one, the deceiver who's been working through this serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise. Now, I want you to kind of imagine it. Try to figure out a way to to make this seem a little more concrete for, for us right now and not just in its theological world we'll talk about in a second. So I want you to imagine a family 
finding the most beautiful, secluded spot on the James somewhere, right? And they're going to spend the day there, no one else around, right? Beautiful day, sunny day, 73 degrees, beautiful. They're going to spend the day there, laughing, enjoying, eating. They lay out a blanket and a a picnic right there by the river. Everyone's having the best time. They're eating, they're talking, they're laughing. They don't hear because it doesn't make any sound, but a water moccasin slithers out of the river up under the blanket. A venomous snake, quietly, stealthily, comes up on the blanket. Immediately, dad jumps up, starts stomping that snake. Everybody's screaming, food's going everywhere, but he's just stomping until he realizes that snake is dead. Everybody's okay. Mom's okay, kids are okay. Picnic's gone everywhere, but they're okay. And as everyone settles down and the adrenaline starts to settle, dad's not feeling great. Something's wrong. No one realized, he didn't even realize, in the mayhem of stomping that stake, he was bitten. And from that point forward, the venom's been coursing through his veins. It's made its way to his heart. He doesn't really have any time left. He stomped the stake, he killed the snake, but he took the bite. And he's going to lose his life. That's the picture of the promise that God is making. There is going to be one who is going to come. He is the offspring of the woman. He is going to crush the head of evil. He is going to crush the head of the snake. He is going to crush the head of sin and death itself. But he's going to be mortally wounded in the process. Right, what the first Adam should have done, immediately stepped in. in. The very moment the deception started, the very moment the lies and the innuendo and the insinuation began, he should have stepped in, but he didn't. One is going to come who will. You see, even in the garden, a promise was made, and we get a sense at least that in that moment and for the days forward, they believed. They believed that promise. And why do I say that? Well, look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Right? For the promise that God makes to actually come true, there are going to have to be continual offspring to come. This is the mother of the living. There was a look of faith in some way in Adam and Eve, even in this moment, as God gives them this promise. And as God sends them out of the garden, he sends them out with this promise, but not just this promise, he sends them out with a picture of how that promise would one day be fulfilled, even if it's a bit like a Polaroid for them. They they can't see it perfectly clearly, and over time it's going to develop and become more clear. He sends them out with the picture. And the picture is in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The fig leaves they had tried to put together for themselves were not going to be adequate for the world they were walking into outside of the garden. Practically and physically, those fig leaves were not going to be able to protect them and cover them when they left that garden and went out into the world to toil. It wasn't going to work. They were going to need something, let's just say, more durable, right? But it's not just a physical reality. Remember, those fig leaves were originally their intent and their effort to try to somehow cover up the guilt and the shame they now understood was very real and was theirs because of their action. 
As one Old Testament theologian said, human beings are not able to cover up their own guilt and shame, so they have to rely on God to provide the appropriate covering. And the appropriate covering for the land in which they were now exiled into wasn't fig leaves, and the appropriate covering for the guilt and shame that's now theirs isn't their own fig leaf either. The appropriate covering was going to require a sacrifice. Blood was going to be shed. Life was going to be lost. But God was going to cover the shameful. He was going to cover the guilty. But it was going to come at the cost of sacrifice. See, God sent them out of the garden. Even as ominous as Genesis chapter 3 is, he sends them out with a promise And he sends them out with a picture of how that promise would one day be fulfilled. And for generations, while that picture developed, if you've ever had one of those Polaroids, if you remember, I'm dating myself now, you shake them, you just have to wait because it takes time for that thing to finally come clear and develop. For generations, this picture would would develop as God would give his people a a system of of sacrifices, of of regulations for their life. And and Moses, the one writing these, would deliver them to the people every single time that they would bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle, would bring a sacrifice to the temple. They were reminded that their sin required this sacrifice. The wages of their sin required a death, and blood was to be shed. A sacrifice was to be made to in any way, shape, form, or fashion what the Bible says atone, which just means cover up or cover over their sin. The picture that was given in Genesis 3 was developing for generations until one day. Until one day. History knows of only one man, one human, that has ever been the offspring only of a woman. Isaiah 7 prophesied, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. The Lord told Joseph, you'll name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. You see, the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without in any way, shape, form, or fashion compromising an ounce of the holiness or justice of God. And the way that God did that was through his own son who would come and take the venom of the serpent in our place for our sin. And in taking the venom of the serpent in our place, he would crush the head of Satan's sin and death itself. Paul would tell the church in Corinth that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, unlike the first Adam, unlike Adam and unlike Eve, Jesus didn't have blame to try to pass, he knew no sin. He didn't have blame to try to shift onto someone else. Rather, he said, shift all of your guilt, shift all of it onto me. He didn't pass the buck, he took it. Said, pass it all on to me. And in his body, on the cross, God made him to be sin in our place. God poured out his justice for our sin on his son so that any who would look to him in faith would be given the gift of his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection. He crushed the head of the serpent. He took the venom in our place for us. 
This is why Paul would say to the church in Rome, if because of one man's sin, death reigned through that man, that was Adam in the garden, right? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, it was in Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sins that he fulfilled that promise and picture that God had made and given back in Genesis chapter 3. And now in Jesus, God clothes us, not in the skins of sacrificed animals, but in the garments and the robes of his own son's righteousness and perfection. He quite literally takes our sin, takes this jacket of sin and puts it on his son and takes his son's perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect delight in God and puts it on us, covering us in the only way that God can so that when God sees us now, he sees us in those robes. And he sees his son. It's the greatest of all exchanges imaginable. He took the venom. He took the guilt. He took the blame. He took the suffering. He took the judgment in our place. And he offers us his perfection and righteousness. He's the one that made a way back for us into the presence of God. I mean, that's part of probably the deepest loss, if you spend some time thinking about it, that Adam and Eve experienced in exile. They were no longer now in the presence of God in the garden. They could not be in his presence anymore because of their sin. Remember, God put that cherubim and those flaming swords going every which way to keep them from coming back in. If they were going to try to get back into the presence of God the way they had known it, they were going to have to go through that sword. That's the only way back in. They were going to have to figure out how to get through those cherubims and those flaming swords to get back into the presence of God. As God fulfills that promise and clarifies that picture that he gave, you've begun to see that on the cross, when his son took that venom and took that guilt and took that sacrifice, he's the one that went under those swords for us. He took the swords of God's justice in our place for our sin so that again those who believe unto him in faith see him look to him with the eyes of faith not only get his perfect record not only get the coverings of his robe but we get the way back into the presence of God he gave him a promise and he gave him a picture a picture that began to be more clear in the person and work of his son and I want you to understand Jesus understood himself to be the skull crusher of Genesis chapter 3 He understood it. How many of you know John 3.16? Maybe you've seen it on TV in a football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him. But have everlasting life. Do you know what he said right before that? Do you know what Jesus said right before that? Like in the same conversation, not a separate conversation. In John 3.14 and 15, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what does that have to do with anything? 
Well, he's referencing a story of a situation that happened back in Moses' day as he was leading God's people, the man who's writing these books for us in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's the one who's leading God's people. God's people had fallen into tremendous sin. And as a judgment for their sin, God sent venomous snakes into the land of the people. What a perfect expression of the consequences and wages of sin. He sends venomous snakes People start getting bitten by these snakes and they're dying. And Moses begins to pray and cry out to God. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fashion a bronze image in the likeness of a serpent. Put that thing on a pole and lift it up. And when anyone who's been bitten by one of those serpents looks up at that serpent and sees it, he'll be healed and he'll live. What a perfect expression that God was giving his people. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted that serpent up in the wilderness, anyone who looked at that serpent would be healed, so must the Son of Man. So must I be lifted up. On that cross, Jesus took that venom. He became sin. He made him to be sin, God said. He was, in some sense, that writhing serpent on the pole so that all who would look to him in faith, just a look, just a look to him in faith and belief would be healed. It didn't matter how many times those Israelites had been bitten. didn't matter how close to death they were. It was just the look and the belief. And they were healed. He understood himself to be the skull crusher of Genesis 3. Friends, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to receive the robe of Jesus' righteousness, the only way is through confidence and faith in his sacrifice in your place for your sins. The one who was lifted up high on the cross, upon whom our guilt, our responsibility was placed. One look to him in faith is all it takes. That's all it takes. To be a Christian is not to say, you know what, I'm going to walk out of here and try my hardest. I'm going to try harder today than I did yesterday to live a good life and, and do what God wants me to do. To be a Christian is to say, Father, cover my sins because of what Jesus has done. It's to say, Father, receive me because of what Jesus has done. It's to say, Holy Spirit, make real in my heart what Jesus has done. Cover me in the perfect robes of Jesus' righteousness. Friends, if you want the gift of eternal life, if you, if you want the gift of the forgiveness of sins, if you want the gift of the covering and the cleansing of shame, if you want the gift of being back into the presence of God, if you want that, there's only one thing you have to do, and that's to look to him in faith. To believe, even with the smallest of glances, that Christ died in your place for your sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the fulfillment of the promise and the picture made way back in Genesis chapter 3. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you just now believing it? If so, 
Congratulations. Man, in the blink of an eye, with a look of faith, you've received the greatest of gifts you could ever receive. The deepest and most abiding exchanges has taken place. You have been clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. You will be covered in his glory for all of eternity. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been brought into the family of God and back into his presence. There was hope in the midst of paradise lost. A promise was made, a picture was given that was finally fulfilled in Jesus and that will one day be fully fulfilled when he returns. Now, what you and I have to do is to respond to God's word. Who speaks a better word? That was the question last week. Who speaks a better word? The serpent or your creator and your deliverer and your savior? We're going to give you a moment now as we do each week as we go through God's word to reflect on God's word, to consider what God may be saying, what he might be doing in your heart, how you might respond. And then for those who have looked upon Christ in faith, you're going to be invited to come forward to remember and to proclaim your confidence in him as you receive communion. And as you do, you are remembering that this meal, as, as, as small but yet tangible as it is, this bread and, and this cup, they're a reminder of death and judgment, a reminder of Jesus' body broken, his blood spilled, a reminder that the consequence and the wages for our sin, for Adam's sin in the beginning forward has been death, but it's also, it's also a reminder of mercy and victory. When God judged Adam in Genesis 3, he also promised life. Death and resurrection. They won. The victory was won. At this table, as you come forward, you are proclaiming your confidence in the one who has made a way for you to have life. His death for your life. More than that, you're proclaiming that the one promised has come and he's given you a new record, a new clothes, and new life. That he is the true bread. That's why this meal, this communion, this bread, this cup, it's only truly for those who have looked to Christ in faith because what we're doing is actually physically proclaiming our confidence in him as our substitute and as our sacrifice. So after we take a moment to reflect, for those of you that have believed upon Jesus in faith, have looked to him in faith, will be invited to come forward to receive communion, to celebrate, and we're going to sing. And then we're going to be sent out from this place as his people. So take a moment to reflect. Musicians will come and begin to play, and then you'll be invited forward. Let me pray for us as we go. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a clear picture of your goodness and your mercy. Such a clear picture of your holiness and your majesty. Such a clear picture of our utter need for you and the steadfastness of your goodness and grace to provide for us. God, help us to see clearly, more clearly than we've ever seen before, see clearly your grace and your goodness towards us in your son. Or for those who have never seen Jesus as sufficient, as lovely, as satisfying, even as necessary. I pray this morning you would do what only you can do in our hearts and help us to see him for who he is.
and not just see him for information's sake, but our hearts would long for him, that we might look to him in faith. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that for his glory and for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.